Uh, Seth, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks, Randy. Excellent. Really uh, pumped to have you on here. Uh, Noor, how you doing? Seidel, always good to see you, my friend. There we go. The pleasure is all mine. Well, everybody, welcome to episode number 65 of the Tech Sales Insights. We are honored to have Seth Robbins of uh, Hyper. He's a CRO. Uh, we are sponsored today by Captivate IQ. They're the commission software sponsor of Sales Community. They are pioneering a new standard in commission management and enabling companies to reclaim the power of incentives with a platform built for revenue teams. And uh, I'll tell you more about them later on, but certainly thanks to Captivate IQ for sponsoring and uh, as always brought to you by Sales Community as well. We have a uh, fantastic guest and a fantastic topic. Uh, the topic being conquering zero to 10 million or more in uh, ARR. So uh, look forward to those insights and several others from Seth today. Uh, we're trying to figure out how we uh, had first met. I think over the years, we obviously have, have known of each other. Uh, I think it was primarily through uh, Peter Bell and Mark Thurmond. Uh, full disclosure, uh, we tried to recruit Seth uh, to a company that we were doing a, a search on and uh, certainly has been uh, always very highly regarded, has some certainly big company experience, but has really found a great niche uh, growing and scaling uh, smaller companies, very partner centric, has a great following of a, a great loyal team, very customer centric, very hands on. So I'm sure this is going to be uh, very, very impactful. So uh, Seth, to kick us off, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, so my background, I grew up in Massachusetts. I feel like there's a lot of good sales leaders who came out of there. And um, got my first job as a BDR, where I was trying to be as high activity machine as I could. Uh, went into inside sales at RSA. Was, that's where I met Mark. I was the first promoted uh, inside sales rep out into the field at RSA. Um, at that time, they didn't do it. Uh, then EMC acquired us, and I got my chance to kind of Move to New York City and start working with marquee accounts as a RSA Global Account Manager. And then uh, I started the early stage startup process probably about almost 10 years ago. And I've never looked back. And that's companies that had very close to zero in revenue or zero in revenue. Wow, that's great. <laughs> what about if you, uh, we have uh, lots of ISRs that uh, watch us as well. As you reflect back, uh, what are some kind of nuggets or best practices that you took away from those days? Yeah, as an ISR, like there's no substitute for high activity at that point. Uh, it's a law of the averages. The other thing was, you know, when you got people on the phone with the connects you get, you'd had to be audibly ready, you know, and if you weren't, you just missed it. So that would be my advice. Look at it as like, the role you want next is probably not an inside salesperson. So do the things you do if you're in front of a CIO or a board. Seth, it's uh, great to have you joining us. I uh, would love to hear more about Hyper. Kind of tell us a little about, uh, again, if you're at a passwordless company, funding, who do you sell to, like that ideal kind of customer profile? Yeah, absolutely. So Hyper, what we do is we fix the way the world logs in. And it's a pretty big concept. Uh, but today, people use passwords to get onto their machines, and then they use multi-factor, which is based on a password as well, to access protected apps. We give you a seamless experience from the desktop to the cloud that replaces password-based multi-factor with passwordless multi-factor. And so we sell to some of the largest financials in the world. That's probably our ICP, as they're even ahead of some of the things we're seeing in the market. Um, but our technology is applicable to SMBs. 
Um, and like I alluded to, you know, any kind of company that wants to protect and assure their user is who the user says they are. Who are the, some of the competitors in that space? Who are you seeing in your deals? Who else might, you know, would that financial service company be looking at? Yeah, I mean, I never like to highlight competitors, but I'd tell you that there are legacy providers that have most of the market right now. Um, and they are using password-based MFA. So you have to enter a password, then you have a push to your phone. We're disrupting that market where you basically use your phone as a YubiKey and it gives you a higher level of assurance and a more frictionless experience than a password plus something else. You feel like you're trying to change that user behavior or you're just eliminating a outdated kind of process of how to how to tighten up that security posture? I mean, most breaches happen because of passwords. 82% of breaches happen because of passwords. Your security is tied to someone else's because that password is reused. So we're changing the status quo and it's such a problem. And that's why we say we fix the way the world logs in, right? Not we change anything. No one wants change. We fix a problem. Yeah, I'm pretty passionate about it, as you can tell. Got it. No, it, it makes a lot of sense and love love uh, disruptors in the space. Yeah. What about what can you talk about where you're at uh, funding wise? Yeah. So we raised a Series C. It was led by Advent. You know, in good company with the Wiz, in good company with Salt, in good company with Big ID, and uh, funding to date. You know, we've been smart. You know, we don't like to be chasing a tail. We've raised seventy million dollars, and um, you know continue to build value for our, our shareholders. Gotcha. Are you allowed to say the valuation? Probably not. Okay. Gotcha. Figured I but I'll tell you this, we're a sleeping giant and that's a good place to be. And when I recruit, I use that as an advantage because companies that I've recruited against their valuations are 6 billion right now. And that means there's not much room. So right. You're ready. Uh, you're, you're ready. You're ready to pop. Um, <laughs> So if you are recruited, we're talking about recruiting. So what, kind yeah. of what's your elevator pitch? We have lots of people watching. Yeah. Look, I my job is to hire people better than me, right? Coach them, be better than they are, and help them make more money than they've ever made. They can stay where they are, which may be awesome, and coach their kids' soccer team. And my team's heard me say this, and I really believe it. Or they can pick the right company at the right time and take their kid on a private jet to the World Cup. And literally, that's everyone on my team. And I think that's why we have the field continuity. And I really have done a good job, I think, of hiring people better than me. Great. Always, uh, always a great thing to do. Um, for those watching along uh, at home or work or your car or wherever, uh, you can see us. We cannot see you. Uh, but definitely feel free to chime in with any comments or questions. And uh, we've got Tucker, uh, as always, behind the scenes, uh, able to pull those uh, up for us as well. So happy to take any questions. So so our topic here, conquering the zero to $10 million plus ARR mountain. Um, so obviously, we can break that into a lot of different facets. Uh, but I would imagine probably first and foremost is the people. People's key. You have to get the right people at the right time. It's not like there aren't great salespeople or great customer success people. You just got to get them at the right time for your company. So I really focus on, are they the right fit for where we are today? I look for trailblazers, uh, people who can sell without references, people who can sell through crunchy technology early, and people who know their customers will benefit in the end um, versus waiting until you know the attackers have caught up to it and the prices are just 
commodities. I, I, I love that crunch, crunchy tech. That's a very technical term, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And what about um, kind of standardizing things uh, around kind of co common uh, language on the sales side and other things? Look, so important. You know, when you come in as a CRO of a small company, you're working really close with founders and most of the team is engineering and you have to get the engineers on board what you're doing. They're very process oriented. And so it's really important to have a sales process. It's a common vernacular. So they know where everything is in the process. And in fact, one of the things I do is the first win needs to be celebrated at a stage and the second win as well. So we have win casts that always have the same language and people can understand the customer story, even if they're just an engineer and they know how they can help with that sale or the next one. You said win cast. So that's like a podcast, but it's uh, talking about wins. Yeah. I took a broadcast and it's called a win cast and that's what gets sent out via email. Gotcha. And then what about uh, early on? I know you're a uh, big uh, fan of uh, Gainsight, which is uh, interesting that you went in so early. Talk about maybe the importance of customer success and that kind of zero to $10 million growth. Look, I learned my experience being the first sales rep at Bromium, being behind the pioneers in virtualization and the top VCs. Unfortunately, that story didn't end. It was because there was not a focus on customer success. If we had just taken our first 50 customers and made them successful, we would have been a very different company. It still has a chip on my shoulder because I was right there with CrowdStrike. I was right there with Cyber Reason. I knew it was a market right for disruption. Yeah. And by the way, that's why I'm at Hyper because I know we're in a market right for disruption. I always look for that. That's great. The game site's been great because we get visibility of the health of our customers. We're able to feed it into Salesforce so the reps are aware of their territories. Yeah. And I literally, when I go into board meetings, I can take those dashboards and be more well-educated than anyone at this level of a stage company. Uh, that's great. Why do, why do you say uh, $10 million? Funny you say that. So zero to one is really hard and most companies don't even make it. Um, making it to one to 10, you still have a high chance of failure. Um, but statistics say once you cross 10 million ARR, there's a 72% chance you're a billion dollar company. Those are pretty good odds, right? Now that's yeah. notwithstanding today's venture community and investment um, that we're seeing. That's what I believe. The other thing is, you know, once you hit 10 million ARR, and if you do it quickly, there are different models that tell you, you know, you're on exceptional path, great path, or even good path. So 10 million is a big milestone. And that's when I think you really start scaling and make sure that you're doing it so that sales doesn't become a cost center, but is always looked at as a revenue center, which Randy, you and I spoke about when we first spoke. I'm very passionate about that. Seth, I love your, I love your uh, uh, windcast as a, as a exemplary or an ideal kind of customer profile. The other thing that resonated in your comment was having a sales process. So the engineers, the founders can understand what we do, how we do it. Talk a little about your sales methodology. How do you inspect forecast accuracy? How do you track the deals uh, and your role in that sales process, if you will? Yeah, absolutely. So like a lot of companies just use salesforce.com standard stages. And I came out of the EMC school of thought, which was around medic. 
Um, and of course, I just had to be different. So I changed it from medic to vetic, just difference being value driver versus metrics. I always felt it was so impactful, but it was a spot check of a deal. And I wanted to make it part of my sales process where you needed specific milestones or indicators of success to move out of the stages and put the team in a place where they're not on an island by themselves so that there's a blueprint. If you follow this, you'll be successful. If you disagree with it, let's do it together, not alone, and see if we can change it. But having that also creates that common vernacular. And it allows me right when the quarter to start to only look at deals at certain stages. It's also time-based. So at a certain point, I'm not at a tech win. It's out of the quarter. Hope isn't a strategy. And I try as best we can to land the planes because when you're an early stage startup, it's one deal that's that game of inches. On that note, how do you ensure you and I've been around sales methodologies? Randy's seen a ton of them. We've seen them introduced, you know, rolled out. Seth, I'm always uh, fascinated. And I try to delineate introducing a concept and that early excitement about it and then really adoption and long-term sustainability of it. Can you talk about what do you do? And I love some specificity of a new rep coming on board, understanding it, kind of uh, following it, not being a Yahoo and go sideways on it. Yeah. and really succeeding through it. Talk a little about adoption and really empowering their success through that sales methodology. Look, if I'm hiring the right people, it's on me to help them be successful. Uh, I create a blueprint that they all get. And the reason is when I was a sales lead person, you know, people would, I'd ask, how am I successful? And I heard, just hit your number. And that really didn't help me. So <laughs> it's a blueprint um, that they get. And I said, look, if you do these things, it's on me if you're not successful. And there are pillars, right? So one is what I call sales cardio. Like, I don't love to run, but it keeps my heart strong. Same thing. And that creates the milestone-driven sales process compliance that's so critical. The second is what I call maniacal methodical. And the example I give the team, and you know, Mark Thurman would probably attest to this, is when he knew me at RSA early, I was just a high-activity machine. But when I actually became methodical, I became one of the top reps year in, year out. So that's what I call the other pillar. And it relates to like prosecuting deals, inspection of your own cycles, the rule of three, move a deal forward, find a new deal, close a deal every day. And then finally, solution selling, which is if you're in this position, you have to realize that you could be paid better than a doctor or a lawyer that deals with tougher times in people's lives than we do. And so you need to take it as that sort of trade. And the other thing is Peter Bell taught me when I was at Bromium that you need to think about what you put in place right when the reps come on board to measure they'll be successful. So I create a program called Launchpad that we extend to the sales team and the SEs and it's specific milestones that they can be excited about as they're ramping and it allows us to have an early warning system. That this person doesn't, not necessarily doesn't get it, but we're not doing what the blueprint outlined and let's, let's do some course correction to get them back on track. Correct. And it sounds like you've taken off the shelf sales methodology and you've kind of infused your own kind of personal experiences, kind of what worked in your evolution from a sales rep, from a frontline contributor to a manager and a leader to really kind of customize your own version of this for your team. Absolutely. 
I mean, and I hope that some of my team members will go off at some point, right? Because there's a saying, good mentors know you're going to leave. Great mentors want you to leave. And they'll use some of this stuff as I have to and evolved it. Yeah. What about the importance of kind of relationships? You're, you know, probably selling mostly to kind of net new. You might hire reps who have some relationships, but you have, you know, forget about, you know, pre-COVID, it's vital now, you know, in the middle of COVID, not being able to go face to face, kind of how, how do you deal with that? So listen, I'll answer the first question. You know, when you're building out the sales team early, um, you need trailblazers. As you get later in the sales stage, you can't offer the same long game or even short game. Um, folks on my team, there's a couple who have, you know, George Muldoon, for example. I used to work for George Muldoon at RSA. Oh, yeah, I know George. And he actually has been a critical part of the sales organization for me at two other companies. Yeah. Another one's Doug McLaughlin. I met him. Uh, he's one of the top sales reps and leaders I know. I met him because I recruited away one of his top reps, who's now a managing director at GuidePoint, um, to come to Bromium. And he's the type of leader who let him come. And I knew Doug was a guy I was going to work with one day because of the fact that he turned the focus and he was like, okay, you're going to Bromium. And I get it. Because I told you, bro thing, everybody couldn't stop talking about. And it's probably the reason I've been as successful as I am because I've seen that movie of everything you don't want to repeat. Well, what are, what are some of those? I'm sure Nora's probably, probably going to ask the question as well. But just um, let me go to Nora and relationships, and I'll go back to kind of some things not to repeat. So, Nora, you've got relationship economics. You can talk forever about relationships. Yeah, no, Seth is Seth is uh, living the kind of stuff that I that I preach to a lot of leaders, which is like a family. Randy, you've seen this. If it's dysfunctional on the inside, everybody sees it. So you have to invest in those relationships within the organization and you got to get on the same page and you've got to have leaders who not just talk about servant leadership, but they model it and they demonstrate the, the, the way they show up and the way they build and nurture relationships with their head, with their heart, authentically. And for, for, for you, for Seth, for the audience, if you think about the last two years of this pandemic, we haven't spent more time with more people. We've actually spent more time with fewer people, but we've deepened, we've kind of added some depth. We've added some authenticity. We've gotten to know their dogs and their kids and what their house looks like and things that we may have not would have seen otherwise. So doubling down on those early relationships inside and outside, I believe is critical to that, in that zero to 10, you know, success rate. I totally agree. And you got to turn the focus on to others as a sales leader. And one of the most gratifying things for me has been, you know, the people who have adapted through this pandemic, um, I think of becoming better at their profession. And it's taking advantage of kind of what the situation you have in front of you is, right? Uh, let, me, let me build on that real quick, Seth. Uh, I know there's a lot you could rattle off, but I'm really curious, your lens, uh, share the top two, three things that you believe makes a sales professional successful in that zero to 10. You talked about some of the trailblazers, then maybe bringing in some more seasoning, you know, as, as the company matures, the product matures, you get the early logos. Talk about the top three things that makes a sales professional really successful in that zero to 10 range. Yeah. So what I look for when I hire salespeople in general, right, are four traits. This is before I look at their kind of trajectory and past performance. But essentially it's drive, empathy, adaptability, and intellect. 
If you don't have those type of things, like we're not continuing the conversation. But then at this stage of a company, the top three things are they have to look at their business as the CEO of their business. Because I don't have the cycles to, to micromanage them. The second thing that they need to be able to do is they need to be able to push their customers and relationships early. Because there are examples where people don't want to go first, but it benefits them in the long run. The people who went first in VMware are now CIOs at the largest companies in the world. Right? And then the third thing I'd say, and, and this is critical, they have to believe in what you are selling. They have to believe that this is something that's going to change the world for the better. Right? And here's why. It is bumpy in a startup. It is a game of inches. And we can talk about that later. Um, small margin for error. And one thing I think is critical is field continuity. Right? I've been at Hyper now four years. Every single salesperson who is here is here still that I have hired who I have not had to make a hard decision about. And I think that is one of the reasons we are the most successful we have been. That's impressive to retain, you know, that 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 uh, camaraderie with the team. I, I played soccer for years, and the best teams weren't the ones that had a superstar alone. They just they they knew each other. They knew how to play off of each other. They knew how to support each other, and they called each other out. Right when you screwed up, mm -hmm. you heard about it because it impacted the entire team's reputation or the the brand of the company and. That is really critical to get and keep the right team together. Um, I think, Randy, you want to talk about prospecting to strangers because the, the, the last two years of this pandemic, we're not going out and making sales calls. We're not doing executive visits. It's just it's dramatically changed how we've sold. Yeah, that's the question. Go ahead, Seth. No, I was going to say, I've heard this before. Uh, I do some advisory work um, and some board work for, for startups. And I have the CEOs tell me that, the pandemic is an equalizer for them because, you know, they're trying to disrupt the Palo Altos. They're trying to disrupt the crowd strikes. And those guys have a huge amount of feet on the street. And now everybody has to use the same medium to communicate. And I challenge them on that, right? Because what you're doing, you don't need to sell to everybody. You need to sell the right people who can make the solution successful at this stage. And there is no substitute for the meeting before the meeting and the meeting after the meeting that does not happen right now. And um, that being said, you have to adapt to this. I think you're right. It is about really connecting with the people. Um, I've used Zoom having to interview people, right? Imagine never being able to meet people in a sales leader role and having to hire them. So you actually kind of over-rotate. You almost want to get like their family on the Zoom so you can get to know them too. Um, <laughs> But here's what I'd say, you know, the pandemic for us was actually very good because people realized that the way they logged in was broken <laughs> and they needed to fix the experience for the user and they needed to assure the user was who they say they were. So there was some silver linings. Um, and then I think everybody also enjoyed being closer to their home and being closer to their families and, and seeing their kids a little more in the morning or the evening. So you got to look at it on the bright side. That's great. So uh, a reminder for those watching along, we have uh, Seth Robbins from uh, Hyper, who's a CRO. Lots of great insights here. 
feel free to post any comments or ask any questions. So uh, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Uh, you're talking about one of your prior employers and uh, some lessons learned from some mistakes there. Yeah. Uh, any uh, tidbits to share? Oh my God. Three things. Never compromise on culture in terms of the people you bring into the company. That's critical. Second, obsession with customer success needs to be had. They had, we didn't have that. And then the final thing is you gotta hold everybody accountable, right? It's very hard to do, but it's so important. And while it's easy to hold sales accountable because of the number, everybody has to kind of row along, along the same way. So those are some of the three lessons and I, and I apply them right now. That's great. So uh, in the startup environment, you know, we even more so now with COVID need to be more kind of family centric, be you know, balanced. Uh, nor calls it work-life work blending. How do you handle that culturally? It must, must be important on uh, at Hyper. Look, Hyper um, is a pretty unique company. Our CEO leads from the front. He's taking paternity. He made sure people know he's taking paternity when he had his first child. Um, you know, we're always on as salespeople. Even if we're off, we're on. Um, but we have Hyper Wellness Days where we try to give people the ability to take off what they take off anyways. And, you know, meeting on a Saturday isn't necessarily necessary, but if you have to do it, you do it, but it shouldn't be just because you think you're working harder. Mm -hmm. You have to find a balance of working smarter too. And I would finally just say, you know, we're going to have our first SKO in two years. <laughs> Everybody's really looking forward to that. I mean, there's, there's no substitute. Um, so I'm glad that we're getting back, I think, into more normal state, but it's been a yo-yo. And, uh, I think that's why if you guys heard me talk about those hires you make, right. One of those traits is adaptability. I think that is critical for the things that you don't know what you're going to experience like COVID. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and so you're doing it face to face. We're doing it face to face in Miami. Nice. We got presenters who are, you know, channel partners of ours, customers of ours, board members of ours. And uh, by the way, I use that. It's always valuable to take advantage of Miami to bring on those not in play players, which we were planning to do and did. So looking forward to seeing some new folks on the team soon too. Well, that's great. So nor, nor another, another topic you can talk about uh, forever, uh, the work-life bending. Yeah, I, again, I, I, I think Seth said it. I think we all figured out that we have really nice beds and we actually like sleeping in our own beds, right? And, and we have comfortable homes. And and the other thing that this pandemic, uh, our research shows, is we're actually working longer. We're working more hours. Uh, somebody, I saw a great meme the other day. When did working from home become living at, you know, sleeping at work, right? So it's just it's just taken over. And what what that impacts is truly our, you know our mental health right and and you know we we burnout is going to get accelerated because i'm back on email after the kids go to bed and i'm i'm checking emails and doing stuff on weekends and it's just not a healthy balance so i talk about work-life blending and a, and a mentor drove this into me none of us have a work life and a personal life we have one life so the sooner you figure out how to really integrate the two uh, you don't want to be at work thinking I really need a vacation and you don't want to be at a vacation thinking the work is getting piled up. That's just not a healthy way of, of doing that. So figuring out ways to disconnect and disengage 
Randy knows this. I ride motorcycles. More recently, I'm going fly fishing. And mm -hmm. on that river, nobody's texting you. Nobody's calling. Nobody wants to have a Zoom meeting. It's just you and that river. And you come back energized. You come back ready to really tackle the world. Just a quick story for the two of you. I saw this in the email signature of an executive. Love this. He says, I'm paraphrasing, just because kind of my email might be out of your normal working hours, please don't feel obligated to reply. And what he's really saying is if you get an email from me after hours or weekend, do not feel obligated to reply. This guy's a senior vice president of a multi-billion dollar company. And it's just setting the tone that there are boundaries and there need to be boundaries between our personal lives and spending time with family and kids and all that and all that professional obligations. But he's not leading by example. He's, he's, he leads because, he, well, he also travels across multiple time zones, including Europe. So you'll get an email from him on a plane, but yeah. just says you don't feel obligated to reply. Do, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We have a question from uh, Jesse. Thank you, Jesse. Uh, so, Seth, have you ever had to bail an SDR out of LinkedIn jail for using bots? No. <laughs> No, I preach get on the telephone as much as we can. I'm I'm old school. There's just nothing like it. Oh, that's great. Um, now you guys are 100% channel centric, I think, right? As much as we can, yeah. I mean, we believe that the channel can be a force multiplier. Um, it's really important to have the channel investment at the right time, and it's really important to realize it's not going to happen overnight. So you got to get support from your board, and you got to get support from your CEO, which I've had. And yeah, we feel good that we're helping them move from selling password-based MFA, which is something they really understand, to this next evolution, which is going to be passwordless MFA, right? More secure, better user experience, and more breadth. Got it. And what, what type of channel partners do you have? So we got partners like Optiv and GuidePoint, Cirrus. Those are standard. Trace3. So and a lot, we're of, the, a lot, lot of the traditional. As well. Gotcha. So a lot of the more kind of traditional legacy bar channel providers that are kind of moving out, up this stack in terms of solution selling services, that type. Exactly. Like zero trust is a huge thing right now. And it's about how can they drive advisory services? And so with hyper, we basically provide a solution that meets the new OMB guidance that just came out. So the white house said, this is zero trust when they just announced about 11 months ago, and then they just made a guidance update that said you need phishing resistant MFA, which is awesome for the civilization. Because yeah. before it was basically saying zero trust can still rely on a password when as part of a factor for multi-factor. And now they're saying you should have phishing resistant MFA, which basically puts hyper right in the crosswinds. You know, And as I was saying to my board the other day, it's like we feel the pull now versus the push. And that's that transition too that we talk about, getting you know past the 10 million number. Mm -hmm. No. So are they more leg uh, call it legacy enterprise channel partners or more niche security channel partners? I would say Optiv's pretty large and Cirrus pretty large, but like a guide point and a trace three are yeah. more boutique-y. Yeah. So it's a mix of both. And like in Europe, it's different, more distribution with VADs. So switch uh, gears for a second. Uh, Randy and I chuckle about this all the time, that RevOps wasn't a thing when we were selling. Right. So obviously selling and, and really aligning the way we sell to the way that that ideal customer profile buys has become more critical. Can you talk about the importance 
and difference of rev ops and sales ops? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, revenue ops, um, I think it's becoming more and more of a new phenomenon. Um, I think it's related more to, to the stack that you guys have to manage as a CRO today, you know, from the gongs, from the gain sites, from the outreaches, it's going to continue. And in fact, when I hired my sales ops leader and it was a sales ops leader from cyber reason, she came joined after four years there. She right after the year was like, I don't need a promotion, but I just want to become rev ops. And she kind of helped me understand that it needs to be looked at that way. It's not about sales, it's about revenue. And that means it's about retaining the revenue, the gross revenue retention, also the net revenue retention and being able to measure everything because you can't manage what you don't measure. And there are people who are thinking, move it out of, you know, revenue. I'm not one of those individuals. <laughs> I, I love that you talked about the the customer success and and gain sight um, because we we believe in this idea of a customer lifetime you know life cycle and and really the maturity model of marketing tech early on to create awareness sales tech to kind of get them to purchase but then customer success technology to kind of along with marketing to kind of make sure there's adoption and there's advocacy. And then when they come back to reevaluation, there's upsell, cross-sell opportunities, and they renew that ARR, so you reduce your churn. Can you talk about some of the, the sales tools, some of the tools you guys are using in your tech stack in that journey and kind of give us a little glimpse into what's really working well for you? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, I'm a big believer in this concept of lead to customer excellence. And uh, prior to us bringing in a new CMO, phenomenal guy, um, he was at BitSight, unicorn guy there. You know, I own marketing, so I was really involved in that lead part. Um, you know, we're using tools like HubSpot right now, and we've integrated that into Salesforce. Uh, that was probably done earlier on uh, in the stage. Then we moved into tools like Gong and Outreach. Gong is amazing. Um, you know, I'm not using it on the enterprise field team yet, although I've had some enterprise team members come to me and say, I want to use it. Right, which is just an awesome example of me not trying to micromanage them, but them realizing like Tom Brady, like he works in practices and like this is a trade. Uh, and then Gainsight's been great because, like I said earlier, it kind of ties everything together. Like, so we can have a 360 degree view of the customer and we can have runbooks for the CSM team within it. So there's also capabilities where, as a CSM, I can have what I call like a co pilot experience and it gives me what steps I need to do when I'm engaging with the customer, right? What I also love about Gainsight, and I'm very kind of big believer in metrics, is you can build your own health scores to dictate how you then use a certain customer excellence play, right? So the same way you have sales plays, I'm a big believer you have to extend that to the customer excellence side too. I appreciate you bringing the uh, Brady. You, you, Seidel always finds Massachusetts, you know, people that bring Brady up, especially with our Falcons. We're just happy that he retired. Okay, let's just let's just give somebody else a chance to to win a few. Well, Look, why, why you're a bad quarter, you can point to Tom Brady. I'll give you an example. His first pass was an interception in college. Obviously, greatness is not defined by what you do in the pass. Right? Got it. 
Got there it. You go. And, and, and since Nora brought it up, can you show us? I think. Uh, oh man. See, I think as we look at the screen, the left is uh, Sorry about that, against the, against Matt Ryan and something else against the Falcons. You want to explain? Yeah, absolutely. So look, I'm a big believer. Um, we haven't talked about this yet that you have to get a program that everyone buys into. Uh, and look, at Hyper, we're going to get to 100 million ARR. And I told everyone on the team from the start that it's going to be easy having sales kickoffs because our theme is game of inches. So that picture behind me is Edelman's catch against the Falcons. Again, sorry, Noor. Um, which I think personifies what game of inches is all about. So for me, there's four P's, and everyone on my team knows it. Pride, prescriptiveness, preparation, and perseverance. And in a game of inches, you have a very small margin for error, and you need those four P's, right? So if you think about this play, right, pride, Patriots weren't giving up, even though they were really down in the game. 28 to 3. Exactly. Perseverance, there was no one who wanted that catch more than Edelman, and he got it over three Falcon defenders. Right? Prescriptiveness, he ran the exact route he needed to run to get open. Right? And preparation, like they wouldn't have got there if they didn't have preparation the entire year to play in the Super Bowl. So that's why I have those there. I've I've got the fifth one for you that describes our Falcons. Pitiful. So this this episode of the sales community is brought to you by Brady and Company beating up at the Falcons. Thank you, Seth. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. And uh, since we're talking about sales tools, I'll uh, give Captivate IQ a commercial. Um, so they were I was actually introduced to them through Peter Bell and Carl Eschenbach, nice. and I'm pretty sure that that was the first investment that Sequoia and Amity did pre-COVID without actually meeting the people face-to-face. -face. So I hope I have that right. But um, from a common sense perspective, they basically take uh, current technology, say compared to a, a gain site or some older legacy providers and allows sales leaders or finance to actually change compensation plans on the fly, which a lot of times you can't do, allows easy access to the, the data so people know if they sell this, what they're going to make, how's it get collected, and, and automates a lot, a lot of that function. So uh, for those that are interested in uh, helping your sales reps save time, messing around on their uh, commission reporting and helping sales leaders uh, change the comp plans uh, faster, not based when they have to, according to the system, uh, definitely go check out Captivate IQ. And uh, Seth, I'm sure you're a big believer that uh, compensation plans drive behavior. Comp drives behavior, absolutely. And as you're bringing on new people, being able to quickly change the comp plans and know the impact is, is impactful. We're not there yet, but we're thinking about it. And I'm going through the pain right now of doing all that manually. Um, so I can see a lot of value in what they're doing. Awesome. So um, you, you've been around uh, more than a couple of years. How have you seen uh, sales change? And uh, what do you think of uh, the, I'll say that you're a CRO, but the evolving role of the CRO? Wow. Great question. Um, yeah. So I guess I am pretty old now. I uh, caught into enterprise sales in 2005 um, and then haven't looked back. So one of the things I'm seeing is PLG. If you're going to be a CRO, you need to be all in around PLG, um, product-led growth. Um, it's now more important than ever because you're not in front of the person 
and customers are even more educated by the time they get to you. Um, I don't think PLG needs to be looked at just as like a sales motion for the SMB. I think PLG needs to become the fabric of your go-to-market if you're going to do it right. Um, I think the CRO, while it was a, a road warrior in the past, the successful ones are very close now with marketing, always kind of insights around the data, living and measuring the data. Um, and the final thing I'd say is just that customers are smarter than they've ever been right now. And that makes sales a little more difficult, but I think what it does too, is it makes customers more successful than they've been in the past too, because they're buying the right solutions and they're doing the right things to ensure that what they bought is successfully deployed. Seth, you said early on, you before you brought on a CMO, before Hyper brought on a CMO, you, you ran marketing. Yep. Talk about what did you have to do as a mercenary or trailblazer early on in marketing? Because my impression is it's very scrappy. You're kind of doing what you can. And then as the company evolves and you bring a CMO, you tend to double down on the brand voice and the consistency of the collateral with what's on the website. And more importantly, Seidel and I've chuckled about this love-hate relationship between sales and marketing, <laughs> right? Marketing says we're generating a ton of leads and we got lead scoring and we'll toss it over and sales couldn't close if it was water and they fell out of a boat. So how do we bring more alignment between not just marketing and sales, but also marketing, sales, and customer success? Wow. So I'm a big believer that your message has to be so simple that you could tell your spouse and they could tell their friend in yoga and they know what you do. Um, so I think being able to early on to be in front of the customers and really understand what resonates is a huge advantage um, for, for a company. You know, we basically, because of that, started understanding our sales plays, started understanding that no one knew what passwordless meant and still doesn't. Um, it's once we came up with passwordless MFA that now every single competitor has followed, which means you're doing the right things. Um, we started clicking, right? And the reason is when you say passwordless, people sometimes think it's less secure because I'm not entering a password. Um, they also think it's free. But when you say multi-factor with passwordless, there's a budget, there's a requirement, there's spend associated with it. So really valuable being able to own messaging earlier on um, the other reason not to bring a CMO early on, frankly, is it, it's a knife fight in that early stage. And I think a CMO needs to be given a lot of money and you don't want to burn that money. You want to be able to create a good CAC quickly with that type of spend. And I don't think it's possible early on in the process. And owning customer excellence and marketing to your last point, it allowed me to get insights from the customers getting deployed and pull it back into the marketing. Like we have example, one customer that despite rolling out MFA, which was Hyper's passwordless MFA, their help desk costs went down 35%. That's massive because typically when you add security, yeah. it's gonna go much higher. So that's why I think it's good to have all those tied together. But right now I was ready to hand over the reins. We're at that point where, you know, we're looking to do upper quadrant type growth and we have to look for you know real go-to-market extensibility. And uh, I was involved in the CMO hiring process. I had a veto. I love the guy we got. I think we're lucky. And you're right. He and I have to be aligned. And, and I'm telling you, we are aligned. 
Which how do you do that? How do you, how do you ensure the two of you not just initially but stay aligned as you you know he and his team build campaigns? You've got your sales team and sales methodology doing their thing. How do you ensure you stay aligned? So for me, you know, there's flesh flesh wounds and there's fatal wounds. And I focus on the fatal wounds where I really need to. The flesh wounds I don't care about. That helps with alignment. I care about the outcomes. Uh, you know, we have marketing forecasts weekly, the same way I have a forecast. Are these things turning into sales handled leads? Are these things becoming POVs, right? MQLs are great. I own the BDR team. That was important. I'm sure if he wanted to be difficult, he could have fought that, but he cared about outcomes too. So I think the person's important. I think both of you being able to know what success looks like. Why did I want the BDR team? Because I was a BDR at once and I knew I wanted to become a sales leader. I knew I wanted to become a CEO. That was a while ago. Actually in life now, I realize I'm pretty happy doing what I do and balance like you talked about, but as a BDR, that's your farm system to then inside sales to then outside sales. And if that's in marketing, I just don't think it works. And I think he was in agreement to that. That to me would have been fatal as example of fatal versus flesh wound. Well, hey, uh, maybe talk about, you, you mentioned uh, BDRs, but talk about how you set up your SDR and BDR functions. Yeah, look, so <laughs> there's different schools of thought, and obviously there's only so many resources. Um, if you give somebody too many choices, they're not good at all of them. So they also look for the easiest path. So for me, BDRs are pure outbound and they do outbound that's cold or they do outbound on MQLs. MQL to me is not a demo request, is not a contact us request. Mm -hmm. So what we have is SDR that does contact us requests and demo requests and make sure that those meetings are worthy and then BDRs. And typically those SDRs don't necessarily have that tenacity that the BDR has. So maybe they take a different trajectory or maybe they prove they do and they move into that next path. Gotcha. And certainly that's the lifeblood to your kind of pipeline at the company. So maybe you talk to the importance of them and assuming some are watching and other people that might be interviewing or potentially looking at hyper, you know, around kind of the career opportunity and kind of what your perspectives are there. Look, I think being a BDR is an amazing path coming out of college. Um, you get to be close to the customers. You get to kind of learn the fundamentals of sales, perseverance, and you have an opportunity at Hyper to get into a company where you could go so many different areas. And, you know, it teaches you your own time management earlier on which is something that's extensible in any role you have, even CRO or CEO, whatnot. Yeah, that's great. And uh, presumably then you've got a kind of migration path kind of already set up where kind of going into sales and take your RSA example, your RSA, move up the rep food chain, then became a global account manager in, in New York, one of the tougher territories. Absolutely. I mean, I saw it firsthand. Um, RSA, when that happened to me, did not have an inside sales, outside sales program. They, I'm not going to go too long of a tangent, but they basically said, Seth, you're invited to come up and help us teach the managers how to interview properly. And it's a fake story you're going to hear about. All they did was ask me about RSA. I had four offers right after. 
And um, Ann Johnson realized I didn't want to move. She's now one of the highest level sales executives at Microsoft. And she called me and basically said, why would you go and, you know, take a player role anywhere? This isn't a GM. Why don't you to stay local? And um, that was the path that taught me I want to do the same thing for people. And so I made sure, you know, in every company that BDRs to inside sales to outside sales can happen. And also, I just hired a director of inside sales and demand, which let me tell you, tough role to find the person who has those modern approaches and understands those tools. If that person wants to do something else in the future, I'm fine with that, like I said. So it's about making sure that people that you want stay in the company and you never have them come to you, your real A players, for more money or more opportunity, or you already lost. Yep, absolutely. Well, uh, well, well said. I think I'm going to come in uh, dial for dollars for you. Um, so, you know, reflecting back, um, you've probably had some mentors along the way that have given you some good advice. Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely have. I mean, outside of my parents and my dad, um, just on the professional side, you know, Peter Bell was someone I really was impressed with early, uh, met at the Bromium board meetings. He taught me a lot about, you know, the importance of never compromising on a sales hire. A lot of people will sometimes do that and how those investments in sales need to happen. Uh, you know, Mark Thurman taught me tenacity um, is no substitute. You know, Jeff Hayden, he was somebody who stepped in and kind of taught me the lesson of never let your A players come to you for more money or more opportunity. Um, I came up via inside sales, right? So it was very easy to kind of stay at a certain payment thing and kind of get incremental. And I'd have to go get job offers and then be, you know, told it's okay, we'll mentor you more. Um, Jeff was the first one who came in and said, Seth, we're going to take you to market. Um, and I never actually after that looked to leave RSA until a while after. So definitely had the luck to, to be around some of those mentors. Um, and I try to be a mentor now to the folks on my team because I saw how valuable it is. Um, but what I also learned is that all those mentors are also great learners too and have adapted and evolved through the years. Wow. What, what about advice that you'd give to your younger self? Oh, don't break so much glass early on. I mean, that's a common you know, thing. You talk to Mark Thurman early on, you'd hear, you know, I should have this role now. Let me go. You know, and that's where one of the things I always tell people now is act like the job you want now, but don't be a jerk about it. That's a, that's a great point. Um, Seth, I'm, um, I'm bullish on the trends this pandemic have accelerated. Uh, I'm bearish on the trends the pandemic is trying to dramatically change. So talk about some of the trends you see in your world that I'm actually interested in. What do you think is going to stay with us? And this pandemic will pass. At some point, we're going we're gonna to adopt, we're going to adapt, we're going to modify some of our behaviors, some of the things that we do. Talk about two, three you believe are going to stay with us uh, on the other side of this thing. Uh, yeah, look, I'm a big believer history repeats itself. I think like every hundred years we have these type of horrible sicknesses uh, and we have persevere through them. But I do think what this one has created is the fact that people can be productive and not take three hour commutes to get home. Um, and so at Hyper, we are a remote first company. 
right? Not remote only, remote first. And I think it gives us an advantage. I think you're now able to hire people in places maybe in engineering you wouldn't have. And maybe it you know, made it much harder before to get that talent that now you have it. I don't think that's going to go away. I think people will no longer go to the office five days a week, frankly. And I think it's maybe a good thing because there has to be that work-life balance, right? Europe kind of had it way more than the U.S. Another thing personally is, you know, shelfware, right? There is more inspection on software spend and the utilization of licenses. And I think what you saw with Snowflake and that phenomenon on consumption model, right, is something you might start seeing more and more of um, because people want to pay for what they get. Uh, and look, for us, we don't have the benefit of it being just something that CISO buys and puts out there. This stuff is in the user path. The CEO, CEO uses our stuff. Board members use our stuff. CIOs use our stuff, right? Because it's how they access their machine and how they do their work. Um, so I think that's something that has changed. That, you know, making sure they're buying and buying for the right utilization now more than ever. If we were to visit... A year from now, three years from now, uh, give us a prediction of how the CRO role. Tell us about how Seth at, at Hyper learned, grew, evolved. Well, first off, I don't think the Falcons will have won a Super Bowl by then. You know, here we go again with the personal <laughs> attacks. What's up? I know you have thick skin. <laughs> you know, three years from now, Hyper is going to be over 100 million ARR company. Uh, and that was the goal I set. I literally have a wine bottle from when I just joined Hyper where it says unbottle at 100 million in ARR. So at that point, you know, we've decoupled authentication from the identity providers, which is one of the most important things for our long-term category creation. And I'll have seen a lot of people probably on my team have a chance to kind of be a CRO themselves. And that's gratifying to me. And, uh, you know, I'll probably be looking to do the next thing because I really was focused on taking this thing to a hundred million and I'd be okay. Hanging the, handing the reins off to someone else after that. Love it. Love it. I think the tenacity that Mark Thurman drove into early on is alive and well. And, <laughs> uh, and as I, I know all three of us coach and mentor others, and it's gratifying to see some of that wisdom that they've shared with us in our journey, kind of cascading through our relationship with others. So kudos to you. Yeah. Thank you. That's great. So anyway, we're uh, at the end here. So you've been amazing uh, for those uh, that want to want a baseball update. Uh, happy to report so far. So good. So Duke is uh, three and one. Uh, they've uh, he heading to Baylor this weekend for a, a hopefully a good series. And uh, Alabama's undefeated four and oh, and they're heading to uh, number one University of Texas in Austin. So uh, we're going to be bouncing uh, between both places. Coincidentally, they're about an hour, hour and a half away. So uh, we'll uh, report next week and see, see how we're doing. But uh, more importantly, uh, Nor as always, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Uh, Seth, you've been fantastic. Uh, next week, uh, really proud to report that we have Dave Riley for our 66th episode. He's a ex-Wall Street CIO, CTO from a whole bunch of great names, B of A, Morgan, Credit Suisse, Goldman, Merrill Lynch, I've known him for a long time, and uh, I'm sure he'll be a fantastic guest. And the title, uh, I don't uh, have it exactly, but something about selling to 
uh, Wall Street CIOs and CTOs now, as opposed to how things have been before around uh, v value propositions and uh, other things, and uh, also thanks to Captivate IQ. So, uh, Seth and North, thanks so much. Tucker for behind the scenes, as always. Uh, thank you. Everybody have a great day and a great week. Yeah, thanks, thanks everybody. For the